I'd like us to consider tonight in just a single study this subject. It's based upon Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. How should we pray? That's the question tonight. The disciples had listened to the Lord Jesus praying. What a difference there was between the way he prayed and the way they prayed. And I'm sure we could say the same tonight. And so I want to consider, let's just read verse 1. It came to pass, Luke 11, that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, we imagine the disciples had heard him, heard his words somehow. And one of them says to him, perhaps they just saw his manner, and they said to him, teach us to pray. Teach us how to pray, we can say. As John, as John the Baptist taught his disciples, so teach us how to pray. Brother Graham Tutor, a few months ago, ago very ably answered that question briefly. Why should we pray? And he gave three answers. We are commanded to That's good enough. And so we must pray. Prayer helps to shape our stubborn, sinful will to God's perfect will. So often when we come and pray, we ask for the wrong things in the wrong way at the wrong time. So when we come to pray, our will is shaped and molded into God's will. And thirdly, he reminded us that it's also in some extraordinary, mysterious way, it's part of God's eternal plan that when we pray, maybe in the timing of when the Lord answers and in the shape and the form and the fulfillment of God's eternal plan, he takes our prayers into account. How can that be? That my prayer should influence God. Perhaps it's easiest to think of it that it's the time that God chooses to answer. He waits until we pray and keep praying and pray earnestly. And then he answers. Remember, God is outside of time. Well, that's why we pray. But we can add a fourth Tonight, we pray because Christ prayed. We pray because he taught us how to pray. And that's really our pattern tonight. Every child of God, can I ask this question? Are you praying? Do you have a prayer life? Is your prayer life active? As active, as earnest as it should be? We can all pray with more desire. And so we try and answer this question tonight. How should we pray? It's a massive question. We could try and answer it in so many different ways. Do you know in the Word of God, there are 650 recorded prayers? 650. And the Lord Jesus, his prayers, if you take out the repetitions 
And those instances recorded on more than one occasion, there are at least 25 separate prayers of the Lord Jesus praying. Separate instances. Of course, there is the time he prayed in seven different sentences, as we call them, the seven sayings of the Lord Jesus on the cross. But there are many others. Do you know, even the very fact that Christ prayed is remarkable. Why did he need to pray? The Son of God, the one endued with all power, somehow fully human, fully divine, and yet he needed to pray. And his prayers were not sporadic, they were not light, they were deep, sincere, and earnest. The Puritan Matthew Henry has a book, it's highly recommended, it's called A Method for Prayer. He breaks down prayer into so many different divisions and they are so very helpful in the way that only Puritans can. Prayer today is so light. Sometimes I listen in to other churches. I don't do this in a critical way. But you know, it's just as though people are praying to a mate, speaking over the garden wall. There is no reverence, no awe, no order, no pattern. There are no breakdowns and divisions in prayer, all the elements. Well, that's what I want to consider tonight. The method, the habits, the characteristics, the features, the pattern, the priorities that the Lord Jesus had in prayer. If there's one thing we take away tonight, it's that we should pray like Christ. Not pray in this familial, matey, fashionable way today, but to pray to some extent. We're not Christ, I accept that. We're not praying for strength to go to Calvary. We're not praying for the salvation of souls through our own death, yes, granted. But so much else of Christ's prayer life is there for us, for us to learn from. No wonder the disciple, we don't know which one, whenever it says a disciple, we automatically think it's John, but this is Luke's gospel, and so we don't know for sure, but one of the disciples goes up and says, teach us to pray. Now the context these disciples, they were Jews. And their habit was to wake up at six in the morning and pray. 3 p.m. in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice in the old Jewish system, they would pray. And nightfall, they would pray three times a day. They were probably formal prayers. They prayed three times, 
their prayer life was so deficient. And that's what we take out of this verse. Teach us to pray. It's as though we're not praying, Lord. It's as though when we pray, we're just going through the motions. Sure, we can all say that. Just a routine. Lord, teach us to pray. Well, let me give a slight diversion. Should we have set times to pray? Sometimes people ask that question. My answer is yes and no. Yes, because it aids discipline. It avoids neglect. It creates a good habit. We wake up early, we pray. Before we put our head on the pillow, we pray. And we pray at other times as well, but my answer also is no. Don't just pray at set times. Pray always. Pray as though you're breathing out. As naturally as breathing in and breathing out. Pray not at set times so that you're rigid and inflexible. Pray when the need arises. Pray when the spirit is stirred. Pray when the Lord lays something and someone upon your heart. So yes, it's good to pray at set times, but no. Pray often and pray always and pray as the Lord stirs us. Let's try and avoid dryness, formality, and mere habit. Well, I want you to notice something else in Luke 11. We'll look at it again in Luke 10. Notice this is the Lord's Prayer. We're so familiar with this. I'm not overly fond of formally saying prayers week after week after week, as some do in some church liturgies. We try, if we can, to pray from the heart, not written down prayers. Yes, it can be beneficial for children and also for elderly people who perhaps can be reminded of the pattern of prayer. But the thing I want to notice here in verse 2, the Lord Jesus says, Our Father. What's so strange about that? This is one of the first times in the whole Bible, that that term of address in prayer is mentioned. Go back to chapter 10. When we look in verse 21, we read these verses. It's quite striking, because this is not the normal way for a Jew to pray. Normally they would address as Lord, Lord God, Lord. But Christ, here in verse 21 he seems to stress it. O oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. At the end of the verse, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Verse 22, all things are delivered to me of my Father. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father. And who the Father is but the Son. Father, Father, Father. That's a contrast. Now, 
There is a more intimate way to pray. Christ is teaching. Go back to chapter 11, when he gives this pattern prayer, probably not meant to be said just as a formal prayer, but as a shape and structure with the priorities that we'll consider shortly. But here he says, Our Father, Abba, Father, Our Father. There's a personal element to it. When you pray from now on, he tells the disciples, pray as a child speaking to his or her father. No longer distant, Lord, come before your father. Speaking of a new and living way. Mary didn't pray that way. Neither did Zacharias when he was waiting for the Lord. But now the Lord Jesus himself says, you will have a new relationship. Now it will be our Father which art in heaven. That's significant. We can come with confidence as before a Father, with the intimacy, with the access. Every child should be able to come to their Father in prayer, and so can we. Well, let's look briefly at the Lord's Prayer. I don't want to spend long on this, I'm sure you know it, but six areas that this teaches us. These are elements that should be the focus, the structure of prayer. Is this the way that people pray today? When people and pastors pray in public, when you pray in private, and you have time to pray, do you use these six areas? The first one we just mentioned, God's name. He has many names. We should use them. Each of those names teach us, help us, each of them appropriate, not Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all the time. Our Father, Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. His names are so important. Why are there so many? Because they each teach us something of his character. And we're to use the many of them. Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's the first point. That's how we start prayer. And try, through your prayers, to use the name of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, we come to the Father now through the Son, through his finished work on Calvary. Secondly, what's the second area of prayer? The second area is, why do we pray? We pray because through our prayers, it should be and it is our desire that God's kingdom will come. What does that mean? God's kingdom come. Do you know? It means God's kingdom should grow, should appear, and should be hastened, brought forward. May the ushering, ushering in of the kingdom of heaven be brought near. Come, Lord, quickly. 
May the kingdom of heaven grow, souls saved, and may it be hastened. What does the Lord Jesus say? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. That's our first priority in prayer. Once we've addressed the Father through the Son, we come and seek his kingdom. Thirdly, this is very important. This repeats what we said earlier. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do you know that was fashionable in the 1980s in the healing and charismatic movement that people were taught go in prayer and demand healing. Tell God that cancer must be named and shamed and we should claim healing in the right of what God has said. No. The word of God does not promise healing. Why did Paul have a thorn in the flesh through the whole of his life? Because the Lord allowed it. He permitted it to teach him, to make him dependent, to make him rely upon the Lord. The Lord does not always remove illness and poor health. In the word of God, very often trials, testing, illness, the Lord permits. And so when Christ says, Thy will be done, when we pray, everything is couched in the terms of, if it be God's will. I pray for this, I pray for that, I pray for conversion, I do pray for healing. Yes, the prayer of faith. But it may not be God's will. There was a famous case, I won't mention the man, a well-known pastor, he had many, many books. And his books were famous world over. And he contracted cancer. And he told his congregation, I have heard from the Lord, I will be healed. He wasn't. Three years later, he died. It wasn't the Lord's will. The Lord had a better plan. The Lord determined that then his days would be numbered. So we always pray. Prayer, remember, is verbally in our heart and mind submitting to the will of God. That's vital. Fourthly, we notice here something about the present. There's something about the past and something about the future. This fourth point is about the present. We are permitted to pray about today. We have needs today, but notice that's fourth in the order. Give us day by day today our daily bread. That's a catch-all phrase that says, my needs today, my health needs, my strength, my family, my food, my shelter, my job needs. Give us today our daily provision. God cares about the present. We can pray. We have burdens. We can pray. And the Lord will hear. And we can have confidence. He will answer for 
the present, but there's something about the past. Verse 4, forgive us our sins, they're in the past. And I can't be forgiven for my past unless I'm willing to forgive those who've sinned against me. That's what the Lord is teaching us. We have a debt and we are also debtors. And so we pray about the past, today's sins, this week's sins, Lord cleanse, heal, forgive what I've done wrong. That's the fifth point, the fifth focus that we're being taught. But there's something about the future which we're being told here. We can pray for protection. Lead us not into temptation. As I move forward from today, as I go to bed tonight, may my thoughts be clean and pure. May my work tomorrow be honorable. May my witness be upstanding. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Six focuses of how the Lord teaches his disciples, all of them, and therefore us, how we should pray. See how the focus should be of our prayers. Do we give due balance and weight to God and his names and worship? Do we pray for his kingdom? Do we submit our requests to his will and his perfect way? Do we ask for the present, for his provision, for the past, for his forgiveness, and for the future, for his pr protection. But I want to look at the Lord's own prayer life. Turn back to chapter 5 of Luke and verse 16. Well-known verse. Luke 5 and verse 16. We'll notice again, happens to be 6, but briefly 6 features of Christ's prayer life. They're not all taken from this verse, but a couple of them are. It says, Luke 5, 16, and he withdrew himself into the wilderness and he prayed. Christ desired to be alone, not on his own, but alone in communion with God. Do you know to pray very often we need quiet. That's why these churches that are so noisy, so much going on, you can hardly hear yourself think. Is there a spirit of prayer? Is God present? The Lord withdrew himself into the wilderness to pray. That's why we come aside, come from the world, and we come to a place of worship and we want God to be here. We want the reality of knowing God. He withdrew himself into the wilderness where he knew where God would be, his Father, and he prayed. So we can notice that prayer is central to his life. Communication is central to a marriage central to a church that members, friends talk to one another. It's central to employment, to relationships generally. 
and even more. Your and my relationship with God. There will be none. And we will certainly not have a close walk with God unless we withdraw to pray. Secondly, we notice he made it a priority. He was so busy, so busy. So often we find in the Gospels he didn't have time to eat, to rest, to sleep. He was hardly alone, and so he made it a priority to withdraw, to come aside a little. Sometimes he prayed with others. He wasn't always alone. It's helpful to pray with others as a family, with a friend. When you go to somebody else's house, it's natural to pray together in prayer meetings, in public, all different ways. We make it a priority. He prayed at all times. We can think of him praying in the morning, that's mentioned. He prayed at night time. He went to pray at night time often. But he was constantly in prayer. We read in Luke 10, his spirit was in prayer. That's his inner heart. Not in a special place, but he just spoke to his heavenly father. But there was also notable times. And that's why I say, don't just stick to rigid times. He prayed all night before choosing his disciples. He prayed before the transfiguration. He prayed in Gethsemane. And he sweat great drops of blood. He prayed seven times because every saying on the cross was really a prayer. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He prayed at all significant occasions. That's why as a church, whenever th ever we do something significant, at a marriage, at a funeral, every time we gather together as a church, when somebody dies, when somebody's sick, we gather for prayer. And he also prayed, and I want you to look at this verse, it's very significant, Hebrews 5 and verses 7 to 9. We won't turn to many more scriptures tonight, but this is a significant one. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. This chapter is speaking of that great, mysterious character, a forerunner of Christ, Melchizedek. But it says in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. This is moving from Melchizedek, the type, to the real Christ. 
It speaks of him offering up prayers, speaking of his death. Prayers and supplications, no doubt referring to John 17, we'll look at that shortly, with strong crying and tears. Christ, crying, oh he's a strong man. Surely strong men don't cry? Christ did. Strong crying and tears unto him, his father that was able to save him from death, yet he didn't. And he wouldn't, because it wasn't the father's will. And notice, Christ was heard in that he feared. You know, that's the secret of prayer. If you and I want to be heard, the secret is fear. Fearing God. Fearing his name. Reverencing him and respecting his will, his purpose, his plan. That's the secret. Christ was heard because he feared. Though he were a son, capital S, the son, yet learned he obedience. Christ was obedient, but he had to learn and practice obedience by the things which he suffered. He suffered. It's a reminder again, because we will suffer. And we have to learn obedience through suffering, just as Christ did. So, there are a number of features, but as we draw to conclusion, let me give you four characteristics of Christ's prayer. And to do this, I want to look finally at John's account in chapter 17. John 17, we call this the high priestly prayer. Christ's prayer as he prayed before the cross. And this prayer is so deep, so mysterious, so full of theology, so full of the doctrines of grace, election, of the way the Lord works in a heart and how every one of his children will be saved in accordance with his will. Well, the first point of four let me just tell you this, we've mentioned it, but this is central to prayer. When you pray, when I pray, when I lead you in prayer, when I pray in private, is this my desire? Communion. Communication and intimacy with my Heavenly Father. Prayer is drawing near, coming before God, coming into his presence, desiring to be one. Let me try to prove it, just two verses. Verse 5, and now, says Christ, O Father, mentions it again, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee. They were one before the foundation of the earth. 
And he desires that they will still be one. When he's died and risen from the dead, glorify thou me with thine own self, God the Father and God the Son, to be one, which I had and I desire to have again. There's a sense in which when Christ was a man, yes, he was still God. But there's a sense in which as he goes to the cross, he knows he will be forsaken. For a time he will not be one with the Father. And he prays that he will be once again glorified in the way that he was and the way that he will be. Look at verse 21. He prays that they all, this is us, if we're believers tonight, that they all may be one, one together, one united with the Father, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee and that they also may be one in us. Do you see what it's saying? God the Father, God the Son, they're one. And his desire for us is that three, including us, should be one. That's what he's saying in effect in verse 21. So we desire communion. That is real prayer. Communion. You've not prayed unless you've come near to God, as Christ did. Secondly, we can do this briefly, submission. Submission, I won't turn to it, but Luke twenty-two forty-two. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that's what we find so hard, isn't it? I want my way. I want my will in a church meeting. I want my will in the family. I want my will in the marriage. But you know, I was saying to somebody yesterday, submission is only submission when you do something that you don't want to do. If you only submit when you're in agreement, that's not submission. Christ submitted to the Father's will. Wives, submit to your husbands. Church members, submit to those who have the rule over you. All of us submit to Christ. Thirdly, the first feature of prayer, communion. The second, submission. Thirdly, you've not prayed. If you have time, sometimes there are short prayers. You've not prayed unless you're worshipping. Worshipping. That involves praise, thanksgiving, rejoicing, adoration. Those are all themes so missing in public prayer today. When we come in prayer, we try to praise God. We try to thank him. We try to adore him, to love him. They are central. What did we read in Luke 10? The Lord Jesus rejoiced in his spirit, in his soul. 
That's a prayer. His heart was lifted and he rejoiced within him, just as Mary did. And then finally, John 17, if you're still there, oh, this whole chapter is so full of petition. Who's it for? This is asking. Prayer is not just asking. All the other elements should be there first. But John 17 is full of asking. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. Who? I pray for all those that the Father has given me. He knows our names. He knows our sin. He knows our character. I pray for them. I pray not for them, those in the world, those that don't hear me, won't hear me. I pray for those that the Father has given me, for they are thine. He prays for the elect. He prays for his disciples. I won't prove it. He prays for his persecutors. He prays for all believers. And of course, he prays for himself. Prays that he will be faithful, that he will endure. He prays, finally, verse 17, that we would be sanctified through the truth. His church would be built up, cleansed, made more holy, that thy word is truth. Oh, just a few thoughts on this vast subject. How should we pray? I've not done it justice. We could learn and think of so much more, but Christ's example, his prayer life, his pattern, his priorities, his method, surely they must teach us something tonight, even if it's only reminding us. May we be in communion with God. May we submit to God in prayer. May we worship him. And may we come with our petitions faithfully, not just for ourselves, but for others. May the Lord help us to pray as Christ prayed.